If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm Donald McIntyre, and this is Murderers and Their Mothers, the companion podcast to the CBS reality series, which airs every Sunday from the 15th of May at 10pm. Now, throughout this series, we're investigating some of the world's most notorious killers and asking, were these murderers born evil or did their relationships with their mothers make them into monsters? On today's episode, we look at the case of Dr. Harold Shipman, the man who had become Britain's most prolific serial killer, with at least 215 known victims. But why did a man who was trusted by so many turn into someone who wielded the power of life or death? Well, joining me to discuss the intriguing case of Dr. Harold Shipman are Dr. Liz Yardley, Director of the Centre for Applied Criminology at Birmingham City University. Welcome, Liz. Hi. And also Dr. Mike Berry, a forensic clinical psychologist. Welcome, Mike. Thank you. Well, let's start by looking at Harold Shipman's early years. Shipman was born in 1946 and grew up in a working class area of Nottingham, the second of three children to Vera and Harold Sr., well, it's quite uh, clear to me, Liz, that his, you know, his mother was very influential in his early years in how she moulded the young Harold Shipman. Absolutely. And I think right at the middle of, of all of her kind of hopes for him was this idea of social mobility, this idea that this was the post-war years. There were now opportunities for him that didn't exist for her. So, so it was about moving up a level, I think. Now, she suffered a stigma. Why was that? Well, she was she was illegitimate. Her parents weren't married when she was born, and that was quite a big deal uh, at this this point in history. So she was very keen, you know, to make sure that that Harold wouldn't be labelled in the same way that she'd been labelled. So she went absolutely out of her way to to try and protect him from all of that kind of stuff. Mike, what kind of mother was Vera Shipman? Well, she she was typical of a generation who wanted to get the best for her children. But she was also a very rigid thinker. She was a Methodist by religion and came from a Methodist family. And and she was very much a controlling woman to the extent that she dictated that when the children came home they weren't allowed to play in the streets, things like this. I would imagine she'd be what we used to really call working-class Tories. 
I mean, she must have been aware that she stood out like a sore thumb and didn't give a damn. She clearly was, you know, obsessed with the idea of advancing and getting her living vicariously through the ambitions of her golden-eyed son, Harold. Yeah, but this is no different than the mum who wants their child to be a dancer or a star on the television and or a musician, and they live through the child. She's clearly lived through the child. Mm. What's interesting here is that while people live through the child, through the dreams of music, music and dance, that's not an isolationist kind of occupation or preoccupation. But he was isolated from an early age as a child. I think he was very much so. I think you know, she was absolutely determined that he was going to work hard at school, that, that he was going to benefit from the opportunities that, that she wasn't able to. So there the really was this sense in which she, she isolated him you know, from, from his peer group in terms of controlling his behaviour. So you're going to come in at this time and you're going to do your homework, but also in terms of his appearance. So, so he, he looked visibly different from the other kids. Vera's sense of grandiosity and superiority, it must have been quite profound to send your own child out, you know, at that time in that era, in the early 1950s, with a bow tie aged eight. I mean, the abuse he must have got, the abuse he'd get today. Oh, it's horrendous. But she saw very much bow tie, professional, middle class. That's what she wanted for her son. And she was determined that's what he was going to do. And he did. In fairness to her, he achieved what she wanted middle-class respectability. Now, it's interesting, she's got three children. She doesn't do that with the other two. And it's not clear from what we know about him why he was targeted as the special one. Usually it's the first child that's the, the special one and then you water it down as you go to second, third, fourth. Whether it was mm. something to do with his looks... Maybe, because there wasn't that kind of dilution, was there? As more children came into the family, the, 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 you know, the first one would be the target of lots of, of ambition and aspiration. It, it was, was slightly strange that, that he was the target. But he was definitely the golden child, and certainly there was always the sense that she wanted something better for him. What impact would that have had upon the local neighbourhood? Lady Muck is how I would imagine she would have been referred to. And certainly I, I came from that kind of background and I would certainly use that expression to describe her. You know, around this age, there's no clear signs of trauma, even emotional trauma at home, if you decide that those kind of grandiosity sensibilities of his mother imposed upon Harold, if you decide that's not child abuse. But, you know, are there any indications of the murder he'd become or the pathology that we see later on? No. You, you couldn't at that stage say, this child is going to be a murderer. What you would say is this child is likely to get depressed, mm. not cope with all the pressures put on him, and end up being a hippie living uh, in a commune, a, a kind of response to the rigid Methodist mother and everything else. So if he was going to rebel we could predict it, or he'd get depressed. You wouldn't predict he was a killer. A lot of pressure on him, but no sign of, of what he'd turn into, I don't think. The young Harold, while intelligent, had to work hard at school and no doubt his pushy mother encouraged, obviously, this hard graft. And his reward for this endeavour was a place at the local grammar school. Now, to what extent was he able to meet his mother's expectations, Mike, at this stage? He wasn't very bright, it's the first thing, but he worked very hard. And I think she created a home environment where education was valued. A lot of the families, they would have said, hey, take your head out of the book, lad, don't waste your time on that, or don't get above your station in life. She's saying, 
we will make room for you to have somewhere you can study. We'll give you the facilities that you need to, to work in. So the, the encouragement was there. In many ways, she was very middle class in the sense of creating an educational background for her children. I think for, for Harold at this stage in his life, it's not enough that he's got to grammar school. He's now got to stay at grammar school and perform well there. So the pressure doesn't come off him just because he's got in. Does the young Harold Shippen feel he's achieved, he's made no, at getting into grammar school? The problem is he was a big fish in a little pond and then the kids who get to grammar school suddenly realising that they're only small fish in a, in a massive big pond. When you first go to an English grammar school, you're overwhelmed when you suddenly realise you're not the brightest kid in the, in, the, in the class and things like that. And he wasn't. And I think a lot of kids find that very stressful and threatening, having gone from being a star pupil to being an ordinary pupil. And from what we see from his history and his academic qualifications... He was nothing special. What is Vera thinking of her son now? Does he become much more amplified as the golden boy who she must invest even more time into? As he progresses in school, she's got to put more and more energy into him. But she's also reflecting glory. Her boy goes to grammar school. The rest of the neighbours go to the, the local secondary mod. And it, it's not so clear-cut these days with comprehension system. But in those days... Grammar school boys really did look down on everybody else. Liz, there's a sense that class really is a really important part of the Harold Shipman story. Mm, and I think this is a point in history where those boundaries you know, between the, the, the class groups were very rigid. You were either working class or you were middle class. I don't think today it is quite quite as firm as, as that. And it was such a kind of fundamental part of people's identity. So, so we think about what shapes our identity as people, you know, our gender, our ethnicity, our, our religious beliefs. But here it was it's all about social class. In 1963, Harold Shipman's world collapses. His mother is diagnosed with cancer and he becomes one of her primary carers during her dying days. Crucially, he can see how morphine can relieve his mother's pain. Now, how significant was this, Mike? I think a lot's been made of this and I think it's wrong. The, the, he's able to kill by using the techniques available to them. And one of the easy ones is to overdose somebody on morphine. But we've also seen other people use insulin. So it's injecting somebody with something like that. It's a very powerful situation. You're playing God. That's what he's doing. I don't think that the fact he saw his mother being relieved of her pain by morphine uh, was that significant. Seeing the GP coming and visit mum... That, I see, is much more important. This kind of role of the GP coming in and relieving her pain. So the GP is the good guy. And he gets a model of GPs going in the home and talking to patients. And in fairness, if you look at his medical reports, they show somebody who is actually talks to patients. He had a waiting list that was over a year long because people like the fact that this guy actually said, hello, how are you? How's the wife? How's the kids? This and this, rather than next, next, as we get today in our GP surgeries. I think we, we do have a tendency to attach you know, meaning to this particular event, which perhaps isn't there. And, and I agree. I, I think it's, it's about what the, the doctor represents. It's coming into to the home as this kind of all-powerful figure, you know, with these, these kind of rights and privileges to, to people's bodies. So I think he's, he's seeing this, this individual as, as somebody, you know, to aspire to. Go back to the 1960s, the GP was a much different person than they are today. People didn't argue 
you know, they're coming back from the war where until 1948 you had to pay for the GP. So the GP was a kind of very important person, much higher status than the local priest or anything else. And this is something that would appeal to him, his status. Well, perhaps crucially to this story, the young Harold witnesses firsthand the moment his mother dies. Jean Ritchie, the author of Prescription for Murder, the true story of Harold Shipman, takes it up. As she was dying of lung cancer, he was the one that came home from school every day to brighten her day, which had been spent just in great pain. The doctor was very attentive and came every day and injected her with morphine, which was the one relief she had. But nonetheless, it was a very slow, painful decline. In terms of witnessing his mother's death, I can't help but be convinced that that he goes on to repeat this picture and this pathology throughout the rest of his killing career. No, Donald, I think you're totally wrong. He's not repeating that. It's such a profound image, though. No, it's, it's an and image he repeats it like love, Groundhog Day. They want it. It's a lovely image for journalists to use. But the reality is he's killing because morphine is an easy way to kill. And injecting people, they expect a, a GP to give them an injection. That's a nice way of doing it. He's not strangling them, which would be a much more personal way of killing and much more aggressive. I don't go for this mother bit at all that he, he's repeating it. What he might be doing is repeating the fact that, that her GP used to come to the house and pay all her attention and things like that. That he sees as a good model. Killing her with morphine, I don't don't buy at all. Yeah, I mean, Liz, Liz, just see, there were plenty of times where he could have put a pillow over an old person's face in a hospital when he was left alone why why did he have to wait to get an injection well because that's that's a more violent method of of killing somebody isn't it and and here's somebody who who likes to kill in a detached and and kind of objective way replicating the same way he saw his own mother leave this world they die. He says they died of old age. They die peacefully. If you put a, uh, anything over a mouth, you're going to have bloodshot eyes. You're going to have telltale signs of a struggle. You're going to have defence wounds. That doesn't mean the poor old dear, and it's nearly all old dears, died peacefully. He wants to get away with it by this method, by injecting, he can get away with it. Any other method, people would look at it. We may have to agree to disagree there, Mike. Well, the grieving Harold Shipman puts his energy into getting into medical school and despite having to retake his A-levels, he shows great determination and hard work to achieve a place at Leeds Medical School where he meets his future wife, Primrose. The fact that he had to retake his A-levels, is that significant? It shows that he wasn't bright enough or was he just suffering from the grief of the loss of his mother? Well, it could have been that that, that event had an, an impact on him, obviously. Um, but but yeah, it is it is evidence of of how difficult A levels are, and and that he you know just simply didn't have enough to to do it without an incredibly hard amount of work. But he had very poor O levels, didn't he? And he got five O levels the first sitting, and then I think he took another two after that, and then he did his A levels, and he had to reset that. So it's not it's not coming as a um, top of the drawer by any means when he goes in. But the, the other thing was there was a shortage of medical students. After the war, there was the change in 1948 when we got the, the National Health Service in, there was a shortage of medics. So therefore, the medical schools were opening up and creating a lot more opportunity than is available now. Now, what I found particularly curious is that for a man desperate for respectability, he goes and he meets Primrose, his future wife, and gets her pregnant in medical school. These are the kind of no-nos. He failed the biology test, obviously. Was he that 
stupid to get her pregnant? Did he want to get her pregnant? From what I understand, she was very prim, also from a Methodist family, and didn't talk to all the girls about uh, sex and things like that. She was very kind of on the edge of her crowd, so she wasn't that sexually knowledgeable. Maybe it was the fumblings of two innocents that caused them to get pregnant. I'm extraordinarily kind of perplexed by how we think his mother would have handled that situation had she been alive. His mother really did instill in him this idea of, you know, middle-class respectability and, you know, getting someone pregnant out of wedlock was an absolute no-no. It would have interfered with her plan for him... She would have said if he was going to medical school that he was going to be a doctor, he was going to go and do his university education, not dilly-dally with anybody else and certainly not end up marrying them because that could interfere with his education and she would have opposed that strongly. Harold Shippen graduated in 1970 and gets a job at Pontefract Hospital and is thought it's here where he's first suspected of committing a murder as death rates appear to increase when he's on duty on his own. Do you think, Mike, he's a killer at this point? I suspect that he is. Often we find that uh, get behavioural triads. Killers will try and do dummy runs before they do the actual killing. And I suspect that he did actually kill there. He's got access to, to people here, hasn't he? And, and that's the, the crucial thing about Shipman and his murders. I wondered at one stage whether he was actually doing a, a bev- Beverly Arlett. She was the, the nurse that uh, injected uh, children and then would come rushing in to try and help them and she was the kind of angel and everything else. And I wonder whether, in fact, had it been something of that nature that he had uh, tried to become the hero mm. and saving but actually got it wrong and killed and then thought, hang on, I quite like this. Again, killing is, is like sex. It's the hardest the first time. Once you've killed once... It gets easier and easier, and I've talked to a lot of killers over the time, over the years, and they say the first one is the hardest. That's quite interesting. Mm. You're mentioning the Beverly Allard case, that Munchausen's, which started out as kind of a Munchausen syndrome. Explain that to listeners. Yeah, I mean, Beverly Allard, um, it, it's quite widely known that, that she was somebody who would fabricate symptoms in herself, you know, to, to get medical attention and to, to become the centre of attention. And then when she later worked as a nurse, she would be bringing about these episodes in other people to, to create this drama in which she would, you know, run in and, and save lives. And is there a possibility that he went through a little phase of this, Dr Shipman, Harold? Is there a sense where he may have got it wrong? It is a, it's a possibility, isn't it? Was there a, an opportunity to intervene? Was there anybody who could have flagged up this extraordinary death rate at his time in Pontefract? No, because quite often you get something that happens locally that will just put the figures through the roof. If you look at deaths, and then you suddenly have... This year we've had a lot of deaths because of the winter flu and things like that. Another year you won't have the same figures. People always want to blame somebody, but I don't think there was anybody there particularly to blame at that time. They said, oh, these figures are exceptional. Plus, the... Clinical audit didn't come into much later. It's much later when people were actually sit as a group of in, in the multidisciplinary team and say, let's look at what's happened in this case, what could we learn from it and everything else. This is, is far bef- before the clinical audit days, so there'd be nobody assessing it. No-one's looking for this, yeah. are they? And if anybody, like a nurse or a matron who would register concern, she is in the wrong place, the wrong position and the wrong class mm. to exercise any control over this or complain. 
And I think when we're looking at the, the institutional landscape at this point in time, it, it's easier not to upset the apple cart. It's mm. easier to go, OK, well, you know, this is probably just something exceptional and, mm. and to just sweep it under the carpet. The other thing, certainly my experience with, with killer, serial killers, is that they do a lot of behavioural tryouts. So what they do is they practice injuring people. They, if, it's a, if it's a sex offender, he, he, it's a sexual assault, then into rape before he goes into, into murder and rape. And I wonder whether, in fact, he was doing a bit of that, practising, seeing how far he could go, what control he could, he could actually uh, exercise, and probably found that he could get away with literally murder. Yeah, it's this idea of experimentation, isn't it? And if I just push the boundary a little bit further and a little bit further, is anything going to happen? And if it doesn't, well, you know, you've got the green light to escalate, haven't you? In 1973, Harold got a new job and he and Primrose moved to Todd Morden. And it's here where we see another clear warning sign. Shipman has now become addicted to pethidine, an opium-based painkiller. And his addiction is now discovered by colleagues. And extraordinarily enough, I suppose, Mike, in this case, he's taken to court and fined £600 for fraud and forgery. But crucially, he's not struck off. Now, what's interesting to me is that lots of doctors have problems with alcohol and Ooh. drugs. And in very rare instances, do their colleagues blow the whistle? I think it was the excessive amount he was using. But also, he, he then said he would go into rehabilitation so that they could say, right, we've identified a problem, he's put his hand up, he's got his hand slapped, and £600 in those days was quite a big fine. He's going into rehab, he's doing something about it. What is extraordinary, I mean, his veins were collapsing, so he, it was quite a profound addiction. Yeah, and it's, it is trying to, to make sense of, I mean, what was going on here, and I'd be really interested to hear Mike's view on this. Do you think he was self-medicating, or, or what's going on? Why is he, he, he Why developing this addiction? Why didn't Primrose intervene? Oh, he, he could have done this quite easily, different parts of his body. He, he's not walking around with a T-shirt on, so you can do all your arms. Then you can go to your legs, and if you're really desperate, you start doing uh, stomach and then to the penis. That's when you really know you've got a drug problem. But we don't know how far he went down that line, but he must have went a certain depth to be able to use the amount of drugs he was using. He really had a serious problem with it. To the extent that he wasn't struck off... This seemed to be a huge lost opportunity, Mike. Oh, but we're just doing 2020 vision here and saying this could... There's no guarantee that he would have been anything other than a normal GP. In many ways, having put his hand up could actually make him a better GP because he's got a better understanding. Mm. I've I've worked with drug counsellors who are ex-drug addicts and they're by far the best counsellors because they've done it they've been there so in some ways he could have actually been a better doctor for having Mm. made the mistakes learnt from it and said this is what you can do and a lot of people who who begin to harm themselves are never going to go on and harm other people so you just can't make that leap from from addiction to murder See, the interesting thing about serial killers is that you get two types. You get the ones we don't know about until they've done it all and then they pop up like he has. And then you get the other ones at the other extreme, Stephen Wright or Colin Ireland, somebody that I worked with in the past, where he was actually broadcasting what he was going to do. So people knew there was a serial killer operating. This case, in Shipman's case, nobody knew he was operating. That's why he was successful. Mm. Well, free to continue to practice, in 1975 we find the earliest recorded death which is directly attributable 
to Harold Shipman. He killed a cancer patient called Eva Lyons by giving her a fatal dose of morphine. Now, it seems that this pattern, this murder in particular, does set a pattern for his future kills, although he's likely have been rather well-practised at this stage, Liz. Yeah, um, he's he's using what what he has access to, and and something that's that's not going to to be questioned. So, so he's he's looking at, at what's around him, isn't he? And he's making making the best of the opportunities that present themselves. What's his mindset at this stage, Liz? Well, it's very difficult to to get inside the mind of a serial killer, isn't it? And and I think that what's interesting for me is 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 the victims that he's choosing. And, and that enables him to, to get away with this for, for a very long time. And when we look at the, the, the groups of people who are often targeted by serial killers, they are society's most vulnerable and, and the ones that, that are perhaps less visible to us. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Well, a move to a practice in Hyde in Greater Manchester followed in 1975, and Shipman quickly gained a great reputation for helping the elderly and especially old ladies. In many ways, he'd now developed a perfect cover for murder. And he's got the opportunity and he uses it and he uses it quite frequently. We're talking of a murder at least once a month and sometimes faster than that. So he can do that. He's got, he's got patients who are willing to be killed. And I say that in a bizarre way, that they're willing to be killed because they trust him. He says, I'm going to give you an injection, dear. And then they're going to take it. So he's in this group practice. Yeah. And how do you think he's operating within that dynamic? Suddenly he's 
must be feeling a sense of loss of control because he's, he's not comfortable. He's frustrated because it's a practice. There's practice uh, decision-making, the team, and he's not the principal either, so he's a junior within the framework, so he, he doesn't have a lot of control. Going over and setting up his own surgery makes him all-powerful, all-controlling. That is what he's going for. I don't think he's gone there to say, oh, I'm going to start killing people. I think it's more a case of I've got control over my life, my career and everything else and I can play God and that's what he clearly loves to be, God. He's he's clearly someone who who doesn't like to defer to other people. He's the one who likes to be in the driving seat and, and by setting up his own practice he can work unsupervised. And as we see, after several arguments with his colleagues at that shared practice in Hyde in 1992, Shipman sets up his own and therefore gains complete control. There are now no prying eyes or anybody to report on death rates as they escalate. So, I mean, he now is in the perfect place. You know, he's aspired to this moment. He now has killed. He's comfortable doing that. Uh, What's he getting his kicks from? If he's killing week on week, where does he get his kicks from? he's being reinforced by all these old ladies who think he's God reincarnated. They're all going flocking to his surgery. He's got a waiting list of a year. All these old ladies are saying, this is a wonderful, caring man. And then the fact that he's there, he kills them, but he does it in such a nice, gentle way. And that they're they're saying, oh, so-and-so died in his practice. What better place to die? You've got... No guilt about it. You can't say, oh, well, Granny or Mum died and she was on her own for three days. She's actually dying with all the medical help that she needs right there. Mm. It's making them feel, making people feel good. People are inviting death upon themselves. It's a really interesting contrast, isn't it? Because he has these positive relationships with his his patients who think the world of him, but he hadn't had quite the same with his colleagues, had he? He he really didn't, you know, get along with other people at all. And I think here's somebody who always has to be in a powerful position over others in order to have a cordial social interaction with them. I mean, what do you think other people in the medical profession in and around Hyde, in the hospital, in the other practice, must have thought about how his patients considered him. They must have thought, they're seeing a different person here. Yeah, because that wouldn't be the reality that they'd encountered, you know, in their interactions with him. Well, he appears to be becoming an increasingly confident and almost cocky killer. Here are the views of psychologist David Holmes. As Shipman's confidence grew, and he became somewhat addicted to this process, at each killing, he felt more and more godlike, more and more in control he began to feel that he was more and more important. So his method of killing is like the way, and we return to this point, the same way he saw his mother leave the world. Mm. You know, it's, you know, I keep returning. I know you're shaking your head here, you know, for the listeners. He's shaking his head here. You're, you're still resisting this. Yes. You're just saying it's still just a matter of means to an end, it's control. A means to an end. One of the best ways of killing somebody on a personal level is strangulation. You're literally taking the life out of them. You're playing God. He is doing the next best things without getting his hands dirty. He's actually injecting somebody and he's playing God. That's the ultimate. That's what he's doing. Forget all the stuff about reliving his mother's stuff. He is playing God. That's what he's enjoying. Liz, is he now addicted to murder? Well, 
I think he's he's enjoying the, the sense of power that, that comes with what he's doing. I mean, he's able to dispatch people using minimal levels of violence and not leaving a trail of bloody corpses behind him. In relation to this kind of seeming addiction to murder and to killing, was there a sense that he was escalating his murder rate in a sense that like a, a drug addict get, takes more and more heroin or morphine to get a hit? Well, we know that the serial killers speed up the process because they don't get as much satisfaction. After the first five or six killings, it starts to lose its impact and they need more uh, excitement. You often find they escalate the violence or they escalate the sexual behaviour to even see if if that's their nature. Now, interestingly, as has been pointed out, he was a drug addict and he's looking for another hit and another hit. Are there similarities between his drug-taking in his earlier uh, career and his killing in his later career, looking for the buzz, and the buzz never quite matches. Even though he's the producer in his head of the killing, the satisfaction level is 99.9, but it's never 100%. Do you think he's accelerating his killing because he's bored? Potentially, but I think it gets to a point where he reaches a bit of a plateau, doesn't he? And some of his behaviour becomes incredibly reckless. In June 1998, Shipman killed his final victim, 81-year-old Kathleen Grundy. But this one was different. She was relatively fit and healthy, and she wasn't suffering from any terminal disease. Moreover, Kathleen's will appeared to show her £300,000 estate would be left to Harold Shipman. Alarm bells rang. Kathleen Grundy's daughter, a lawyer, passed on her suspicions to the police and following investigations, which included the exhumation of Kathleen's body, Shipman was arrested and charged with her murder. Only then the true scale of his crimes became apparent. Just before we go on to that extraordinary murder rate and body count, it's it's curious that he suddenly goes to steal money and does so against a victim whose daughter was a lawyer. She obviously would be much more investigatory than anybody else. But why choose Kathleen as a victim and why try and take her money? I think he was greedy. I think he was stupid. And why the daughter picked it up more than anything else was, in the will, I'm leaving the house to my GP. She actually owned three properties. So if she had done the will properly, I leave my house to my GP, my other house to my daughter, my other house to whoever, and things like that. So clearly it was obvious that she hadn't written the will. That was the first thing. Now, was he trying to get caught? No, because this man doesn't want to get caught. Is he looking for some way to retire. That's another suggestion people have said, that maybe he's 55, he's thinking, I can put my feet up. But no, he's not, he's not A, he's not the retiring type, and B, once you retire as a GP, what do you do? You lose all power control and everything else. Mm-hmm. So he isn't going to do that. I think it was greed. I think you're right when you reach a boredom level, let's spin it a different way, let's do something slightly different. And also, this guy walks on water. Mm-hmm. He's done 200 homicides. Nobody knows a thing about him. He can get away with, literally with blue murder. Mm-hmm. So therefore, he's walking on water, I can do whatever I want. This. He thinks he's completely untouchable at this point in time. He's been getting away with this for so long. He's starting to mix things up and make things interesting and and he just he just doesn't realise that actually, you know, this is when things start to unravel. 
What makes him so different to other serial killers? Well, he's he's so prolific, and the number of victims that he's dispatched is 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 tremendous. But but I think it's the special access that that he gets to potential victims through his his role as a GP. And we've we've only seen similar numbers in in cases where we've got other healthcare professionals. So Charles Cullen in in the US is a nurse who's suspected of killing you know several hundred patients. So it's that special access to victims. You've got no dead bodies turning up like Stephen Wrights did in, in Ipswich. You've got nobody missing relatives. So therefore, nobody is going to notice these old people dying in the same way that you would if another serial killer... He's not advertising. He's not contacting anybody saying, look, I'm doing mm. this and this. These crimes aren't a performance, are no. they? To what extent is his mother responsible with her building up that sense of grandiosity and superiority? Well, I think she's she's set the ball rolling for somebody who has a very high opinion of themselves, somebody who thinks that they are better than everyone else, someone who thinks that they're untouchable. So I think that the foundations are perhaps laid, you know, to an extent by his mother. Mike, if Vera Shippen was more like Harold's dad, laid back, would he have gone on to kill? That's a very difficult question. We don't know. What, what Everybody has the potential to kill, but what you need is the opportunity and the intentions. And a lot of us have the intentions but not the opportunity. Some of us don't have the skills, some of us have the skills. You've got to get all those combinations, opportunity, skill and intention, all at the right place at the right time. And yes, we kill. Most people don't have the opportunity to be a killer. Summing this extraordinary case up, Mike, you know, how chilling is it that this is a doctor who's perverted the absolute sense of care? It's a fascinating case because he's actually broken the first rule of medicine, do no harm. And that's what all medics are taught at the beginning, not to do any harm. If you can cure somebody, that's great, but don't do any harm. He's broken that fundamental rule. But what's interesting is he does it at the other end. He commits suicide. So once again, he is in control. He's taken control of his life. He commits suicide so that he wins. It is it is a really interesting case and, and it is one that 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 perhaps, you know, we wouldn't have become aware of had he not, you know, slipped up towards the end. So so it is that idea of, of the doctor with that unfettered access to people and sometimes power in the wrong hands can be deadly. Also that he wanted power and control right to the end. He decided he's not going to spend the rest of his life in in a prison. He's going to choose when he wants to go. Do we think we'll see a Harold Shipman like killer? ever again in the UK? Yes. Liz? Well, it's a possibility, isn't it? Because people are still able to hide behind that superiority of a doctor. Harold Shippen was found guilty of 15 counts of murder, but investigations put the number of his victims at 215 or so. Yet, there may be many more. It's also worth noting that since the case of Dr Shippen, there have been significant changes in the way that deaths are registered in the NHS. Now, all deaths must be signed off by two professionals for example, a doctor or a coroner. Well, thank you to my guests, Dr Elizabeth Yardley and Dr Mike Berry. And of course, you can watch the full documentary of murderers and their mothers, Harold Shipman, on CBS Reality at 10pm on the 5th of June. In our next episode, we're looking at the terrifying case of Dennis Nielsen. From me, Donald McIntyre, it's goodbye and thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.